like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. One for mom and one for me. Hey, beautiful. Ulta Beauty invites you to see the joy this holiday season with top gifts for everyone on your list, including you. Discover Black Friday beauty deals all week long from brands like Tarte, ColourPop, First Aid Beauty, and more. Shop in-store, online, or try curbside pickup today. Alta Beauty. The possibilities are beautiful. Hi, I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos from Passport. Each week, we travel to a new place to tell you enlightening, smart, and just plain incredible stories which have shaped our destination. We want you to experience the world with us. And so does this week's sponsor, Booking.com. And the best news is they're about to have the biggest sale of the year where you can save 30% or more. This is a limited offer, so make sure you book before the 1st of December 2020 to travel anytime before the end of 2021. Find amazing deals now at booking.com forward slash Black Friday to come and travel with us. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker. Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Hey everyone, I'm Amy. And I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. Hey Amy, have you ever sailed around the world on a boat with your entire family? No, I have not. I have not done anything remotely like that. (laughs) But have you ever bought a ruin in the hills and built your own windows, doors, and furniture? Uh, no, I have not. That would be a pretty (laughs) sad looking house. (laughs) Okay, have you ever taken a helicopter ride over Arctic ice caps and glaciers? I have not. I've never been in a helicopter, nor have I slept in the open air on a ledge on the rim of the Grand Canyon just to witness the transcendent beauty of the sunrise and sunset. But David Truebridge, who is our guest, has done all of these things. You might already know David Truebridge's incredibly beautiful, sustainable lighting and furniture, but I bet you don't know the rest of the story. Well, you guys are in for a treat today because his life is as fascinating as his lights are beautiful. So let's dive right in. Hi, I'm David Truebridge and I'm from Havelock North in New Zealand. I'm a designer, an artist, a craftsman, all those things. I, I just love to create. I have my own company and we, we produce lighting, mostly lighting, which we manufacture here in New Zealand and we export it all around the world. So you live in New Zealand now, but you were born and raised in the UK. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's right. I was born in 1951 in England. Ah, tell us all about your upbringing. Moved around quite a bit. Uh, I was born in Oxford. My father was at university after the war. And after he'd finished, he got a job teaching uh, up in the north of Scotland um, at a school called Gordonston, which is where Prince Charles and all those royal people went to. So we moved up there for about 10 years. And then he was going to take over the job as headmaster of a school down in the Isle of Wight in the south. Um, and then died and left yeah. us rather in the lurch. Uh, my mother took me and my brother back down there anyway because it all been sort of arranged. And so for, for my teenage years, I was brought up in the Isle of Wight, living by the sea, sort of quite on my own. I went to boarding school, so trouble with boarding school is you don't have friends at home much because you're away most of the time, and, and when you're at school, you leave them behind, you don't bring them home with you. So it wasn't a particularly happy childhood. It wasn't an unhappy one, but... Um, just quite much on my own. And I guess in those spaces on your own, you start using your imagination and creating things. You mentioned you had siblings, right? Yeah, I've, I've got one younger brother. He's still in England. Okay. And was he off at boarding school too, or were you at different schools growing up? Yeah, we were at different schools. Uh, he went to a strange one in the South where they still wear uniform that was used in the 17th century, so long gowns and yellow socks. Oh, wild. So, yeah, I didn't want to go there. That was too way out for me. How did the death of your father at such a young age affect you? Oh, enormously. I'm haunted by that song of Laurie Anderson's when she's talked about when my father dying died, it was like a library burned down. Ah, you know all that knowledge that you 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 should be getting that experience that that contact that you just don't have anymore. And my mother was quite aloof. She was she did her best, but it wasn't easy for her. And we weren't desperately close. So yeah, that was all part of that sort of slightly hard upbringing. But it wasn't a bad one. I mean, you know, we we were okay, and, and I had, had my good times too. I love art. I love making things. Uh, at school, I painted lots of crazy. Uh, landscapes like Turner and Constable and, and made things. I, I went along the promenade and, and the Isle of Wight by the, by the sea and collected used matchsticks and made boats and houses out of them. So <laughs> then I was kind of recycling and making stuff. And, and, and that's what kept me happy. I, I, I just love to make things. I guess that's part of your creative nature started to come out at this time. Did you get that from either one of your parents were either one of them very creative or artistic not really my mother did quite pretty little watercolor landscapes mm -hmm. so yes I mean there was an artistic bent there but not massively creative they were quite traditional so I mean yes we used to go and sit and draw thatched houses when I was a kid in, in little villages in the Isle of Wight and so that was all coming from her and was that creativity, the building matchstick houses and all of that do you think that was kind of therapeutic for you you said you spent a lot of time in your imagination, kind of on your own? And was, was that helpful in terms of processing everything you were going through? Yeah, I'm sure it was. It was it was my outlet. It was my way of kind of directing my sort of energies at the time. Yeah. So you studied naval architecture, which, you know, boat building at Newcastle. What were your college years like? Did you decide uh, when you were building those boats out of matchsticks that this was something you wanted to take to the next level? Oh, I, I just love boats. When we lived by the sea, we could see all the, the ocean liners going out from Southampton, setting off across the Atlantic and the naval ships as well. And that sort of life over the horizon across the sea sort of just, just captured my imagination. I read all the books of, of early sailing, um, <clears throat> loved all the, and, and made models of sailing boats, of, of clipper, you know, wind-driven boats. Because I love boats, I thought, well, let's go and learn to design them. 
But the problem with the course in Newcastle was it turned out to be an engineering course. I mean, basically, whether you design a, a, a building, a bridge, a, a super tanker, they're just big, long beams, long structures, and the boat happens to have a pointy bit at one end, and that's what changes it. So it was 90% engineering, and, and the creative the bit that I loved about the lines of boats was just totally absent from that. So I kind of went off and thought, well, I'll do this anyway to, to get the degree because that's a qualification it's worth having. But I'm going to enjoy myself here. I'm going to do, use all the things that, that are available at university. Uh, I went to lectures in other departments. I started to learn language and did all sorts of things like well, a lot of rock climbing. I loved rock climbing and, and hill walking and things like that. I just made the most of the university while I was there. I have a question about boating in general. So all of this reading and boat building, what was your first experience like actually going out on a boat? <laughs> I mean, we went well off. We, we couldn't even afford a sailing dinghy when I was being brought up. I'd have loved that. So my first boat, I bought a kit set kayak, a plywood kayak, a sort of stitch and glue thing, which I built in the hall when my mother wasn't around. <laughs> I used to paddle that out off, off the coast of where we lived. Again, that was another world. It was just me mm -hmm. finding my own world, which I was living in and paddling around out and I put a fishing line on it and trolled for mackerel and, and just being out there on the sea. I loved it. I loved just the isolation and the rhythms of the sea. And that's been with me ever since. Well, I read that you, after you graduated and made the most of college, you know, you, well, at some point you met your wife and started a family, but then early on you, you sold everything to buy a boat and sail around the world. Is that true? Well, sort of early on. I mean, there's, there's like 10 years there between graduating and, and setting off on the boat. And in a way, that's quite important sort of formative time because at the end of my time at university, I could have gone off and got a job in a boatyard, but obviously I wasn't that in interested in that. But I had a bad car crash. A, a drunken um, driver hit me and broke my leg. And so I was convalescing. And while I was doing that, I was started carving wood in a sort of old mill out in the country. And I thought, this is what I want to do. It's much more fun than designing ships. I want to get my own place where I can just be my, my own boss and make things. I had a couple of thousand pounds that was left to me by a grandmother who died. And with that, I bought a ruin up in the hills, which is the only thing I could afford for that money way out in the center of England and renovated with a group of friends. And, and as a result of that, I learned how to do things like making doors and windows, which we needed for the house. And we bought a little bit of machinery for that. So it was kind of an easy step to go from there to making furniture. I started making furniture as a way of earning a living. And I had a part-time job as a forester in a on a local estate, tending mostly hardwoods. And they had an old mill. And in the weekends, me and the old forester would drag old tree trunks out of the, these forests, take them down to the sawmill and cut them up and I could use them for making furniture. So the important thing for me at that point was I was understanding the connection between the finished material and its life. It's very easy to, to use wood and just treat it as, as a dead material. But for me, I, I was working with live trees and planting them, pruning them, tending them and, and milling them. So I understood the whole process. And that's been a quite important part of, of, of my work all the way through. So that does sound very formative. Was the car crash as well? Did that leave an impact on you? <laughs> Only physically, yeah. Otherwise, no. But I mean, it, it, yeah, it was sort of like a meteorite that sort of changed my trajectory, maybe, because it gave me that time when I couldn't work, and when I was convalescing to sort of work out what I wanted to do. And, and I'm sure it did have an effect. What was the point at which you decided to pack it all in and sail around the world? I guess the point at which I'd sort of established a business there where I was fairly comfortable at this point, I'd married Linda and we had two small boys, Sam and William. And I mean, we both 
like to travel with Linda's adventurous. She used to go kayaking before she met me and, and camping out in the wilds. And so we're both like that. And we both sort of felt that there's like this big world out there. You know, we're, 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 we've got a nice life up here. We can always come back to it. I can pick it up where we left off, but let's go have some fun. Let's go explore. Let's have an adventure. And so we sold everything we had and bought a yacht, which was happened, happened to be lying down in the south of Spain. But the problem with British boats is they don't come back. Good <laughs> no one wants to go back to England. <laughs> so, so the nearest one we could find was, was in south of Spain, and it was actually an Australian boat. A couple had sold it up there, and they divorced, which wasn't was an ominous bit of a sign that one. <laughs> but the boat was proven, full of stuff, ready to go. Perfect. So off we went. Wow. And how long was that adventure? It took us five years before we ended up in New Zealand. And, and it, it wasn't like we set out to come here. As, as I said, we didn't really set out to leave Britain, but no one, once they've left, ever wants to go back when they see the rest of the world out there. And we didn't even intend to stay in New Zealand when we got here, but we needed to work. And initially, what I felt about New Zealand was, was not that positive. It was like a little bit of Britain on the other side of the world. And it was sort of like Britain was... 20 years earlier, maybe. So it took a while to sort of accommodate it and, and warm to it. And, and New Zealand changed quite rapidly through the 80s when, when we arrived here. And, and we sort of came to meet each other after a few years and decided, well, yeah, this is pretty good. Let's stay here. So I have some just basic questions because I have never sailed around the world. What does that look like practically? Are you like at sea for weeks at a time and then you dock and do some work and stock up on supplies and see the local area and then get back to sea? Like, can you spell that out for us? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask the same thing. Did you have like a map? Did you plan it out? Or were you just like, well, we'll go in this direction and see where it ends up? Yeah, you got a map. <laughs> <laughs> we're total novices. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the amazing thing is the original Polynesians who thousands of years ago, before anyone else knew anything about boats, they were navigating across the Pacific without maps. So yes, you could do it, but that's a whole different knowledge. So yeah, we, we, we had maps, but I was navigating with a sextant in the old way. We didn't have anything like GPS. There was none of that, no emails on the boat. We completely isolated when we were out there. And, and ocean crossings would take about sort of three weeks when we're completely on our own. Uh, we had a couple of crew with us because sailing a yacht with two small children is quite a challenge and, and we needed help for that. So those would be totally wonderfully sort of immersive total experiences when when you're absolutely committed and, and you're there and, and you start off slightly with trepidation kind of thinking gosh it's a long way we're going to be all right and sort of looking back at the land a little bit but as it goes on the more and more you're out there the more and more you get into the rhythm of it and the less and less you want to arrive it becomes this sort of wonderful experience that you hear other people saying the same thing oh i just didn't want to get there by the end. I was just loving it so much. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have another question. I mean, I think this whole like sailing around the world thing, I could talk about it for a couple of hours, but were there any particular instances where you had storms or were there any, I don't know, really exciting moments or any notable stories about that time on the boat? Yeah, yeah, we had some pretty amazing, we got eaten by a whale. We sort of went inside the <laughs> Hold up. Hold up. <laughs> Back up. Explain the statement we got eaten by a whale. No, uh, these are the sort of myths that go with, with sea. It, it's very monotonous. It, it's, um, I mean, we, we follow the trade winds, and the trade winds going to blow pretty consistently 
all the year round. And that's why they're called the trade winds, because they were trade routes that this old sailing boats used to follow. And and unless you, you stay in an area like now, I wouldn't want to be in the, the Caribbean because there's big hurricanes there right now. So mm. you, you just avoid the, the hurricane season in those places. And if you do that, then you're perfectly safe. It's, it's further north and south, North Atlantic, South Pacific, when the storms get big and scary. But through the middle, it's it's all pretty good. Really, I mean, it's, it's not easy. You've got to be careful, but it, it's not highly scary and dangerous. No whales. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, or pirates? <laughs> yeah, we met some pirates. Friendly pirates. They were friendly. Yeah, they were yeah. fun. But we, we <laughs> later saw, saw their boat being done over by the French gendarmes in one of the Caribbean islands and, and with divers underneath it and police swarming all over it. So, yeah, they were pirates. It must have been incredible for your young boys to spend five years of their youth at sea. How old were they when you went out on the boat? They were two and five when we started. Oh. Oh, what, one and a bit, one and three quarters and, and four when we started. That's incredible. Yeah, that's gutsy. <laughs> that massively formed them, obviously, because their whole childhood was, was, was spent on the sea. I mean, we actually lived on the boat for 10 years. We, we kept it. And we did trips up from New Zealand. So... For 10 years, for the first 10 years of their lives, that was their home. And the younger one, William, he's he's like the top free diver today. He's, he's had some like 18 world records in the last five years. And that's because he was brought up in the sea. He knows the sea. It's absolutely his world. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so eventually you uh, docked on dry land in New Zealand. We sort of tried to have it both ways for a while because we wanted to keep this, this sailing life and we also needed a land base. So for the next five years, we sort of had a sort of a base in north of New Zealand, and we also went sailing at the same time. And at the end of that, I had a place as artist in residence down here in Hawke's Bay, where we now live, a little bit further south. And at the end of that, we thought, well, we'd saved up a bit of money. Let's go sailing. Where should we go? And the boys said, mm, quite like being with our friends, really. <laughs> By this time, they were sort of into teenage years, and we thought, yeah, okay, we get it. So we sold the boat and we settled down and been here ever since. Your solitude as a teenage youth probably helped you recognize their need for friends. Yeah. You're a good dad. Sounds like a good dad. (laughs) I wouldn't put them through school either. (laughs) (laughs) You said before that you could go back and and pick up where you left off. Is that kind of what you did, but in a completely new country? Did you just start building furniture again? Yeah, I'd I'd done it on the way. I had sort of jobs for a while in the Caribbean and also in Tahiti. We we spent a year living in Tahiti uh, where I made furniture. And these were kind of just small jobs that they were both expatriates who'd built houses there and and wanted furniture for them. And they wanted a bit more than what was available locally. So they were wrapped that that this itinerant woodworker came along and actually made stuff for them in their backyard. It was was a wonderful two-way win-win situation for both of us. But New Zealand was harder because... They're quite sort of Protestant here, quite Puritan, and, and there's not a big tradition of spending a bit more on something special. You know, they'll, they'll go for this sort of pragmatic, cheap choice. And so we actually find it much harder getting going here uh, than, than we had in the past. And once we'd sort of settled down, the first sort of four or five years were pretty rugged trying to get going again. And what were some of the first sort of major milestones in getting going again? When did you kind of know that this was going to be a viable living for you and your family? It was sort of up and down, really, because the first three or four years in New Zealand, when we were up in the north, I started making furniture that was kind of derived from the kind of Pacific Island vernacular, the kind of canoes and the houses they build. And there's quite a strong vein of sort of creativity came out of this. And I was doing sort of relatively well within the curated world of design furniture, I guess. The stock market crash hit really hard in 1987, 88. 
all my sales totally dried up. So that's why I ended up as this artist in residence at the, the design school. Coming out of that, that was the really hard bit, was trying to find a way again um, to pick up the threads of finding things that would sell. But for a while, I, I actually drew houses. I was designing, I designed about 30 houses through the 90s. As a result of having designed one for us, people looked at that and, oh, that's nice. Would you do one for me? And I thought, well, yeah, if you want, sure, great. <laughs> and that was the main source of my income probably through the 90s. While I was kind of exploring way out furniture, trying to find a way to take my ideas, and they kind of got critical response, but not really commercial response. And so that was that was a struggle for us. It was a hard time. Yeah. Were you sort of incubating ideas in which you could still be a, a craftsperson and an artist, but also a business person and scale this passion of yours into something that could be bigger than just one guy, you know, whittling in the woods? No, that came later. And, and definitely wasn't a plan. I had no ideals or aims to have a bigger business. I, I just wanted to make a living out of what I did. That almost sort of came by accident later but at the time I was kind of really understanding creativity and I think it's quite important for me was was that I was exploring what I call the art process and I think there's a real problem with the design world today that they do not embrace the art process they say we're designers we don't do art stuff the art process is where you generate ideas it's, it's the real kind of up in the air creative stuff when you float around the clouds and you also find your own sort of spiritual center, your core, your place to speak from. And through the art process, you develop a language with which to speak. And that becomes the vocabulary, which as a designer you use. So you now have your individuality, you can start to construct and build and create forms as design, which is now by default original, because it's coming from you, right from your heart, from your core. And yeah, and from the language you developed. Yeah, the language you developed, which is entirely you. And it's like an artist, the mark making artists use. Only you can make that mark. It's the personal expression of your body, your experience, your feelings. And you have to do the same with the design. The problem is that most people don't. They say, well, we're not artists. And they do what I call the design shuffle. They kind of do this intellectual exercise where they mix things together to sort of be witty or ironic or, or, <laughs> or stand out in the crowd. But, but it, it's like a one-line joke. It's a gimmick, and, and you sort of laugh and move on, and, and there's no real heart to it. And, and I think what I learned in that time when I was really struggling through the 90s was where, where you find your, your heart and, and how to speak from it. And that gives you your, your individuality and your integrity, which I think is really, really important and often lacking in this world today in design. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I think, you know, in terms of art, you know, art really teaches you a lot about yourself who you are as a person and you learn a lot from it, but you also feed it who you are. So it's kind of like a two-way street. Yeah. I do a talk and I'm, I've actually just finished writing, well, I'm finishing writing a book called Beauty Matters. So it's all about what I call the importance of beauty. And in reference to your two-way um, process, that the Maori here in New Zealand, their word for beauty is atuahua. And for them, it doesn't reside in a person or an object. It's not intrinsic. It's in the relationship. So mm. when you create something with, with love and with care, you imbue it with beauty. But then the person who has that and lives with that is also imbued with the beauty. So it's, it's this two-way process. And so if we create beautiful things, then we elevate, we move up, we go up in this sort of zigzaggy process of backs and forwards. And I think that's what you're referring to with, with the two-way process. It, it's absolutely important that we have that, that exchange 
because the other way, if, if you create bad things, ugly things, um, then we go the opposite direction. We go down and, and we, we, we reduce ourselves and the world around us. And, and so that creativity that's coming from the heart through that art process creates beauty, which I think is a wonderfully important thing in our world today. I agree with you. And I think it's what gives objects a soul and the objects that end up lasting a really long time and getting handed down from family to family usually have some sort of, you know, meaning and relationship attached to them. And even if they end up in a thrift store and you find them years after they were cast aside, that beauty can still be part of your life. I I like your philosophy on that. I think it's really meaningful. In terms of your own business and success, you have a piece that you're quite well known for called Body Raft, which is a sort of lounge that also looks like something that could have come from the sea and has a little bit of that island structural you know, quality to it. And that was kind of a significant piece for you when you took that piece to the Milan Furniture Fair in 2001. Is that correct? Yeah, that was a big change in direction. And after that sort of period in the 90s, when I was sort of searching and struggling, I kind of sat down one day in the forests on my own and, and thought and, and, and realized that, that I needed to find a new direction, somewhere to apply what I've been learning. And I was looking for something and didn't really come up with anything on that trip, but except the idea, well, I trained as a naval architect. Why don't, why don't I go back and look at that, use that? So I went and poked around boatyards in, in Auckland, building a lot of sort of high-tech Kevlar racing yachts. But the way in which you use carbon and the thin strands and the structure you build out of these kind of monocoque hulls got me thinking again. And, and out of that, through a series of steps, it wasn't straight away came that piece of the body rub. So it was it was me going back to my sort of nautical base and and which is I guess part of me. And it's important that you do recognize all the parts of you because that's what makes you what you are. And out of that came that piece. After a series of three or four iterations along the way, that was the final resolution of, of that path. And that's the point at which business started to enter my world. I was no longer the the one man band wood whittler in the workshop in the garden, but things started to change at that point. Was that exciting? Was that something you resisted or something you embraced? No, I, I kind of go with the flow. <laughs> yeah, I thought um, you do. You, if you spend that much time at sea, you probably learn to go with the flow better than most, I imagine. Linda says I'm not always that good at it. I still rage at the weather when it doesn't do what I want it to do. <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, I mean, that is the one of the great lessons of the sea is, is that you do have to go with the flow, take your knocks. And often the direct route is not the straight line. You know, old old time sailing boats, they sailing from A to B. You followed the winds. You didn't go straight through the middle because there was no wind there. Mm, and that's like right. a metaphor, but it's understanding that you might be not heading in the right direction when you start, but actually actually that's following the wind. It'll take you there in the end. And I kind of like that. I like that too. I, I didn't set out to be a businessman, but that Milan showing of the body raft being taken up by Capolini absolutely changed my direction from that point onwards. And, and that's where the business started. So Capolini picks up the body raft. And then how did you end up getting into lighting from the body raft? Again, totally unplanned. And I, and I think the, the lesson I learned from the lighting was that you don't have a business plan because your business plan is based on what you know now. And you don't know what's around the corner. And if you base it on what you've got now, then you're shutting out all the unknowns around the corner, which could be great steps forward. And if you do your sort of conventional market research and you, and you go out and scope the market and find out what's selling and what's in and all the rest of it, you can be sure that you will have a reasonably good chance of selling what you create. But you'll be doing it like everyone else because they've all done the same research. Mm -hmm. But if you go and 
work as an artist creatively with, for no apparent reason, just play, explore, do stuff for the fun of it because you love being creative, you might come up with something which the world didn't even know existed. They didn't even know they wanted. And that's mm. what happened, fighting. It was just play for the fun of it. I went and made something and thought, well, what can I do with it? And Linda looked at it and said, well, put a light bulb in it. And I said, oh, okay, give it a go. <laughs> I like this, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, so the lighting came completely out of the blue like that. And I see the creative continuum as being absolutely that, a continuum. So you, you've got design, which is pragmatic. You design a carburetor for a car or something like that, which is purely functional. But you can move along the continuum, heading towards the art end of the spectrum, and become less and less functional, but still within usable objects. And, and that's where I like to play. And lighting allows you to be much more playful because you aren't constricted by the function of sitting on a chair or, or leaning mm. at a table. Completely sculptural object that's hanging with, with no, can, can be very lightweight, doesn't have to support anything. And so there's much more freedom to play with that. And what we also discovered is that at the time, it was a relatively untapped market. And so if you came up with original stuff, people interested in it and, and they, they were prepared to spend money in it. And so we found that the margins were actually far better on lighting than they are on furniture. It's easier to sell, it's easier to be creative, and it's easier to make money. Well, you have created some of the most iconic and beautiful lighting that exists in the world, in my opinion. It's absolutely gorgeous. And you keep making more, <laughs> more amazing stuff. But I want to talk a little bit more about your specific creative process because it's very unique and interesting. Many years ago, I received a copy of your book called So Far, which documents your travels and your experiences. And you also did a Friday Five back in 2012 for Design Milk, in which your five things were earth, air, water, fire, and ether. And these are also chapters in your book. And I'm really interested in learning more about how these elements affect your life, your art, and your design. I can't easily answer how they affect them. It's more kind of like the other way around. I mean, the, the, the story of those elements and why they're in the book. But there's actually a third part of that, which sadly my publisher wouldn't let me put in and which I, I should have resisted. But because Linda, we come back to Linda again, <laughs> does a lot of yoga. And she taught me about the chakras. As I learned and read about the chakras, I was kind of fascinated because the very special characteristics of each Chakra, which are, you know what, what I'm talking about, the kind of energy node points up the flow of your spine, they've got quite distinct characteristics. Like the first one at the base of your spine when you're sitting on the ground is earth, and it's all about solidity and grounding and finding your base. And the next one is in your sexual organs, and it's water, and it's about going with the flow, and it's completely opposite to, to, to the earth one. That's exactly what we were doing when we, uh, or I went through these different stages in my life. The grounding was up in the high north Pennines of England, working with rock and old wood, almost like oh, I was building the stone in this old stone house. And it was absolutely my grounding. And then, then we went sailing and here was the water experience. And then arriving in New Zealand, the, the next one up is the fire. And the trial by fire we went through trying to get established here and the problems of that and the trying to sort of balance between confidence and ego, not being egotistical, being prepared to sort of take work that I had to do to support the family, but also having confidence to move beyond that and move forward. That was a sort of balance of fire. So the more I read about the chakras, the more they're absolutely related to those different periods in my life. And of course, the, the air one is the lights. And so throughout that progression, the, the structures get lighter and lighter. They start with a very heavy, chunky, woody furniture in the earth phase. They got the, the string lashed a canoe-inspired furniture of the water phase, and then the lights of the air phase. So all this sort of came together beautifully 
in this structure of the book. And, and I only wish I'd sort of been able to hang on to m- my convictions and persuade the publisher to put the, the chakras in as well. But he said, look, this is a book about design. Come on, you want to get spiritual in there. But that's the sort of background to why that's in, in there in, in, in the book. That's fascinating. And I love that you were able to kind of trace your trajectory back to the human body and the energy centers and how you worked your way through each one. And I do think that's fascinating. And the publisher, you know, lost out. But we got it here on Clever Podcast, guys. Exclusive. <laughs> Final one that, that, that they call Ether, for want of a better name. That chakra is at the throat, and that's about communication, which is what we're doing now. And interestingly, I'm sort of less and less – I mean, the materiality of, of the ideas has become less and less throughout my, my history, but to the point now where it is just ideas. You know, I love writing books and talking and giving talks and communicating, and, and most of the material part of the, of the work is done by the people in, in my studio. And so I'm now at that stage at the throat chakra, which is also fascinating. Yes. And I noticed that you write online, you're a blogger. And so you are putting your ideas and your thoughts out there into the world more than than a lot of designers or craftspeople do. And to the benefit of all of us, I think, to be able to to share in your opinions and have a dialogue about things. Yes, it's all part of that understanding of interconnectivity, that, that nothing is, is, is separate. And, uh, and I've always written even way back when I was just making craft objects. I used to write about it for craft magazines, and it was an important part of it for me that I was articulating what I was thinking about, what was going on, exploring that side of it at the same time as the physical making side of it. It's that balance I think is really important for me, and and I've always done that, and, and I still love it. Ah, Thanksgiving. You've got your stuffing, your gravy, and of course your turkey. But what about the drinks? Don't panic. Just use Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter the promo code GOBBLE at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker. Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Doing it. So even back when you were in school, you talked about kind of going off on your own and thinking or making things or being creative. And, you know, I'm, I'm very interested to know at this point in your career where you're not really doing the majority of the making of the products, but you're still doing the ideating. Uh, do you still go off on your own and sit in the forest and think or go off on an adventure 
in some remote place to to you know become more creative yeah you bet (laughs) (laughs) i mean you've been on some really awesome adventures which we would really like to to get into if we can but maybe you could talk about one of your most recent ones I do a lot of traveling to trade shows and conferences and things like that. And I always try and have me time in there so I can go off for a few days and, and hike in the wilderness. And quite often these events are in, in the USA. So I've, I've been hiking around Seattle, Olympic Park, up in the Sierra Nevadas, Colorado, Grand Canyon, Zion Park, um, and, and out in the east around by Maine as well. I guess one of the most moving ones was in Grand Canyon. I was on the north side and, and I'd so I've been following the rim. It was too hot to go down the bottom and there was no campsites available. So I, I stayed on the on the rim. And I went up in the sort of northeast corner where you look out over the painted desert. And I, I sort of came out of the forest on this kind of scarp where there's cliffs dropping away. And, and I saw this kind of ledge in the distance. And I thought, wow, that looks pretty good viewpoint. I'll go up there. And as I came on it, I thought, hey, you know what? I can sleep here. And there's this like three-sided drop-off on this ledge, which is only sort of about sort of 10, 10 or 15 feet square. And so, so I, I laid, because I, I don't carry a tent, I just sleep out in the open under a tree or whatever. And I laid my, my bag out there and I, I slept there. And, and it was amazing sitting there in the evening, watching the sun go down and the black shadows slowly sort of creep up out of the bottom of the chasm of this Grand Canyon, which was like a sort of rent, a, a jagged torn edge that sort of stretched across the, the painted desert going up in the northeast direction. And I just sort of sat there transfixed watching the sort of theatre of the sunset. And then in the night, I'd wake up every so often because the rock got a bit hard underneath me and I'd turn over and watch the stars and see how they'd moved. And and then gradually it started to sort of little thin edge of light appear in, in, in the horizon I was looking out at. And gradually this light coalesced into this orange glow right behind Navajo Mountain. So I was looking out over this this desert with this peak in front of me lined up perfectly with the, this sacred mountain that's never been climbed, and behind it the sun coming up. And it just happened to be the 21st of June, the, the summer solstice. And then the whole theatre of the dusk repeated itself the other way around as the, the black shadows slunk back into the chasm and, and the light picked up the edges and slowly stretched out over the canyon and, and, and there was day. And, and those sort of experiences on your own in those kind of wildernesses are, are just so powerful and, and your sense, all your senses are so heightened. And it's not that in that time I kind of see an idea or come up with something but it, it kind of feeds you. It's, it's the energy which you then draw on later to bring ideas up. And it also creates a sort of empty space in you which you can see deep inside to where those ideas are. You, know, you, you hear creative people talking about how they, how they create, I mean, like Bob Dylan talking about how he creates poetry. You know, you, you, he says you can't force it. You can't will it. It doesn't come to order. You have to know the conditions in which it arrives and place yourself in them and wait. And, and that's kind of what you do in those kind of empty spaces. You, you, you just allow stuff to come up from the depths and gradually it will coalesce and form. And over time, it will form into new ideas and <clears throat> things you could work on. So, so that's why it's really important for me to do that. And absolutely, I still do it and, and, and love to do it. Oh, my God, I could listen to you talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> the way you described the dusk and then the sunrise, I felt like I was there. And I... Absolutely appreciate the stillness and and the quietness and placing yourself in those conditions and waiting. It's sort of like you have to have respect for the winds at sea and 
creativity is kind of like that. It's maybe not a direct path and maybe the weather doesn't do what you want it to do. But as long as you show up and you are ready to embrace the conditions when they present themselves, then you can do something with it. Like you say, you have to be ready. You have to be open to it. And, and it might not be what you expect. And, and absolutely, you can't will it. And I think it's the problem, coming back to what we were saying about design today, is, is that I think too often designers try to, to will it, to create an intellectual thing, which they force. And, and so it loses its spirit, its heart, because they're not going through that process. And, and it's not easy. It doesn't always work. But like sailing, it's not always easy. You don't always get where you think you want to go. But that's life. Yeah. And a lot of times there are outside forces that are getting more merit or more attention. Whoever's got the budget and is forcing things along, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Your love of the planet is very apparent in your life, your actions, the way you talk about it. Your stewardship of the planet is very apparent in your work. And you've been outspoken about how important it is to create with as delicate a footprint as possible. I'm wondering what that means specifically. And I want to talk a little bit about like the manufacturing processes that others could embrace as well to make their footprint a little bit more delicate? I think what it starts with, it has to start with, is, is a state of mind, of, of attitude, because you have to care and you have to be doing this for the right reasons. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work because whatever you're doing, that care, that concern has to imbue everything that you do, every decision you make, every step along the way. And, and I don't do this for profit. I don't do this for growth. I'm not, I don't have any aims to grow anymore. If, if we stay the way we are, that's absolutely fine for me. And so that makes a big difference because I don't have that kind of massive money driver that's behind so, so many bigger businesses that need to do that to, to keep their shareholders happy or, or, or whatever. And so that's, a, that's the first thing is that state of mind. And then that sort of directs every single thought and decision you make along the way is that sense of care of, am I caring for the environment? Am I caring for people? Am I caring for the future generations? And if it means I have to spend more, then I will. And of course, I have to run a business and we have to be able to pay the wages and do all the rest of it. So, I mean, it's not as if money and profit isn't part of that, but it's a different criteria is it's not like it's the driving force it's there as part of the need to run a business but my prime goal and what i'm doing is is creating things which i believe enrich our lives that will make us better people for having having them with us like that story i was telling you about beauty that's what i'm doing primarily and giving a good life to the people that, that work for me and for the same reasons and, and they all subscribe into that absolutely so i think that's the key to it, it it's at the heart you have to care otherwise it just becomes a sort of a tag on that you do just to sort of make it look good or maybe make a bit more money out of something. I'll give you an example that we were using a plywood that we were getting from Australia for our lights called hoop pine plywood. And it was in government controlled plantations and they controlled how much was cut each year. So it's a very sustainable resource. It's constantly being replanted. But then they stopped making the thin plywood that we used. We looked around and we found a very similar wood that was made from basswood and it came from forests up in the north of China on the border with Siberia. But they were clear felling the forests, and I wasn't prepared to be a part of that. And so we looked a bit further, and we found bamboo plywood, which was quite a lot more expensive. But bamboo was grown as a, primarily as a forest to grow bamboo shoots for food. And the timber is like a, not a secondary product from that. It's a byproduct of the food product, yes. Exactly. So that was a great story. So even though it costs us more... Um, that's what we did because that's what I believe in. And, and, and that's the decisions you, you've just got to make all the way along the way. Absolutely. And I think it's admirable that you 
you know, wouldn't just go for the thing that might be more inexpensive or easier to get, et cetera. I think that it's very important in educating designers who are currently in school, like what their options are, where the products that they use or the materials that they use come from and how to make good decisions in the future about what's good for the planet, not just like what looks pretty. Yeah. And if they're in business for themselves, right, they can drive the business based on their own values. But if they're working for someone else, they've got to learn how to stand up to the rest of the forces within that business that are going to say, no, we want to increase the margins or this is better for lead time or this is going to shave, you know, a few minutes on manufacturing. And so you telling your story so that young designers can hear that just gives them more power to reiterate that message in whatever situation they find themselves in. It's becoming increasingly difficult to identify products that that you can use because it's not always clear cut. I mean, yeah, I I gave you the example of bamboo, which is a great material, but converting the round tube into a flat sheet uses a lot of energy to, to machine it and glue it and machine it and glue it which is bad. Nothing is clear cut. You have these compromises and these balances and and you have to decide which ones you go for because there is no perfect solution to anything. And and that's all part of the sort of difficulty of being a designer. We use life cycle analysis and I I started using that thinking this was going to be like a panacea. This would give me a number. This material is 42, which is better than that one, which is 64. So we'll go for the 42. Great. But it's not actually like that because you're comparing carbon or eutrophication, or resource depletion, or human impact. And they all differ, and some are better at one, and some are better at the other. So you have to sort of decide what are the criteria you think are most important for you, and that might not be the same for somebody else. And then you can be criticized for not doing what they do, and so it goes on. So it's a very, very complex field, and, and you just have to do the best you can. And and, and I, for me, the, the answer to it is just being completely open and honest and admitting that some of the things we do are not good, but given all the situation, they're the best we can do um, and we'd like to improve, but you know, we can't avoid all the machining and gluing that goes into bamboo, but on balance, it's still the best material. Well, and it's a thoughtful choice. So maybe somebody could criticize you for it, but nobody could criticize you for not being thoughtful in your decision-making in terms of the material. Yeah, absolutely. And we put a lot of effort into that. We hear all the time that form follows function. I mean, I feel like designers have been beat over the head with that. In your book, you talk about form follows process. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? I guess the lights are an example of that. What I'm, what I'm doing with those is, is using, for a start, I'm using um, sheet material to create, which can only, you know, you take a sheet of paper, you can fold it one way or the other, but you can't make it into the surface of a football. It won't go. So I'm using sheet materials to create compound curvature. With the coral, we, we cut the plywood into like the fingers of a hand, and each finger can bend in a different direction. So you can now create the football surface with that. In that case, I'm having to create those sort of forms in order to create what I want to do in the, in the surface of the, of the light. So the process is driving the form. And the process is creating compound curve thin surfaces, which are like an eggshell, which are, when you clip all the pieces together, you create this strong structure. Using minimum amount of material, and that's important too. There's no big thick bits of timber; it's it's very very thin timber. So the the actual volume of, of wood in each of these is is minimal. And and so the process we go through to create the light is what drives the form of it and the form of the individual pieces. And I think that the, the sort of mantra of form follows function is R.I.P. I think let's let's move on. I mean, in, in 
in nature that you look at a tree, all those different trees, all those leaves are doing exactly the same thing. They're photosynthesizing, they're creating sugars, which the, the, the tree feeds off from, from the sunlight. But every single leaf is different. It doesn't need to be the same. It'd be boring if they're all the same, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. We've learned a lot about your work and your influence and your creative process, but I was reading your book once again. It's so great. I feel like everybody should read it. But you had this experience on a helicopter ride that was like one of the most profound experiences of your life, and it was incredibly emotional. I want to just understand a little bit more about why that affected you and how you're still living with that experience and how you've taken that and whether you've made any changes in your life or your work or anything based on that experience. That helicopter I was was in Antarctica. The New Zealand Antarctic program takes artists, a couple of artists every year down there to, to kind of tell the story of the place through different words than what a scientist would use in, in a sort of National Geographic type report. And the Americans do the same at McMurdo Base, which is it's, it's a great program. A friend of mine's going from San Francisco this year. I think that was the point at which I really felt most strongly about the planet and how we need to look after it. I, I, I'd always been a caring person, and, and care is the essence of craft. And, I, and as a craftsperson, you, you, you care about what you make. That's why you're doing it. You, you're not churning out stuff. You're making something with care. And, and it's only natural that I would want to care for the planet. But that experience in Antarctica was, was really embedded that deep. It's just seeing the incredible emptiness and beauty of, of this world we live in and realizing that you know, we're stuffing it up and we've got to stop. And wanting to direct more of my time and energy to sort of try and help do that. And I think what I'm sort of realizing more recently is, is that it's almost like as a culture, we've done very well. Up to, up to just recently, and what, as we've evolved as humans, it's sort of gone pretty good for us, and, and that was, that's been fine. But we suddenly got to the point now where there's too many of us, and so what we're doing is no longer working. It's wrong. We've got to sort of rethink a whole lot of stuff and sort of go back to the beginning. And if you, do you remember the 2001 Space Odyssey film? I don't quite know exactly what was happening, but, but the guy was sort of taken back into an embryo. And the end of the film, you see this embryo kind of in a cocoon, this tiny, almost like a baby looking down on the planet Earth. And, and what I take from that and, and what I realize in the context of what I'm doing is that we've actually got to almost go back before the Garden of Eden, before the apple, and refine our innocence and our vulnerabilities and start again as a race and, and find a different way. Because that way which began with that story of the Garden of Eden is ended up here where we are now, and it hasn't worked. And so for me, Antarctica was like that. It was like being an embryo, gazing down on this planet, sort of thinking we've got to start again and, and seeing the unbearable beauty of it and realizing that, that you know, it's up to us to protect that, not to destroy it. That's powerful. You've talked about your upcoming book, Beauty Matters, and how beauty is in the relationship in that you as a maker can imbue an object with beauty and then further down the line, the relationship between the object and the user is another opportunity to imbue beauty onto a life. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us the story of something that you have that embodies that understanding. There's this one, uh, you might have read it, the story on the uh, Medium blog about the, the drinking cups that, that I got from South Africa. I was over there teaching a workshop in Cape Town, and there was a, a, a couple, an architect and his ceramicist wife, I can remember their Christian names, Henny and Janine, and they were doing a project with uh, clay cups, and they got 
10,000 drinking mugs. And while the clay was still wet, they got people to squeeze them. And, and I was one of the people, and I, I, I left my fingerprints on this soft clay, and I wrote my name on the bottom. The cups were all then fired, and they were placed in the compound where Nelson Mandela used to exercise when he was imprisoned on Robben Island. And they were laid out on a grid, and the grid showed his prisoner number. And it was like a, a, um, an installation which celebrated 20 years of, of democracy in South Africa and celebrated the release of Nelson Mandela and, and him becoming president. And I did all this sort of couple, two or three years ago, and I'd forgotten about it. And then not very long ago, someone walked into our showroom here in New Zealand carrying a, a package. And it was two of these mugs. And it was the six degrees of separation of, of someone had given it to someone who had given it to someone who was going to Hawke's Bay who gave it to me, which is a lovely story in itself. And so these two mugs arrived, and, and this is what I drink my green tea out every morning at breakfast. And, and the, the squeeze was actually done by uh, Henny and Janine, the originators of the project. So I can sort of put my hand in their squeeze, and somewhere, somewhere around the world, maybe someone's doing the same with mine. And knowing that this cup sat in this compound when Nelson Mandela exercised, this is the power of, of craft, of storytelling through objects. And, and because this cup is so important, there's such a wonderful story, and in itself it's so beautiful, it, it makes that experience in the morning using it so much more special. And, and, and I'd be really, really sad if I lost it. That's a special object that's in my life, but it's also an illustration of how those objects are so important and, and how I will keep it. And this is why I say beauty matters, because it's beautiful. Because it has such a beautiful story, I will keep it for as long as I possibly can. I won't go out and buy another one. I don't need to buy another one. I've got what I have. I've got what I have is beautiful and it's enough. And that is the moral for all of what we do is having far less things, but really beautiful things that matter and, and you live with and enrich you. And then we'll reduce our impact on the planet with all the stuff which we're making. That's a great story. It must be really grounding to connect with that every morning with your green tea, too. It must kind of just remind you. Yeah, it does. It does. It's not a casual experience. It's not a sort of a different thing. You just swig it. I mean, like, I can't stand all those plastic cups that you see people walking around the streets with, with their Starbucks coffee. <laughs> you know it's going into a rubbish bin, and you know the next morning you'll see those rubbish sacks piled high on the streets or in the night, and, and the trucks will come screaming through the streets at night, picking up all those sacks, and they'll take them out and they'll chuck them on the landfill. I mean, that's the alternative, and that's the world that, that, that mostly that we live in, and, and it's appalling. I think what I really enjoyed about that story was the idea of someone else putting their hand in the squeeze, in your squeeze, and making a connection, because I do feel like we don't have a lot of that in our lives. I mean, we are using Starbucks cups. We're using, you know, items that are mass produced all of the time. And we're not really making meaningful connections to the objects that are around us. And this was actually the reason why Amy and I really wanted to have these conversations with designers, you know, when you buy a beautiful table or a lamp or a, you know, a piece of pottery or something like that, that someone else has lovingly handcrafted, there's a story there, right? And that story now is part of your story and there's a connection and, you know, it, it can really make small moments of your everyday more meaningful, or at least give you a moment of pause or reflection during your day, which might be packed full of other crazy things and meaningless items. It's nice to have some things in your life that really give you that sense of, of connection to the people and the things around you. 
though. I think that's a lovely story. I'd almost go further than that and say it's more than nice. It's, it's, I think it's really important. I agree with you. I, and I think we should all strive to surround ourselves with only objects that we can form this meaningful connection to. Because if we can do that, we can reduce all of this meaningless stuff and therefore the harm and the clutter and the trash. But we can also, I think, foster relationships with one another in a way that's much more powerful if we choose to surround ourselves only with objects that have this kind of meaning. Yeah, because of that two-sided nature of, of, of there's, there's somebody on the other side of that. It's not yeah. just you. It's a relationship. Yeah. Okay. So I want to hear more about Linda because we've talked a little bit about her. So why don't you tell us how your family dynamic has evolved over the years? Tell us a little bit more about your relationship with her. And also maybe you mentioned one of your sons was involved in making things as well. Could you tell us a little bit more about your family? Linda's an artist. Uh, she went to art school, and so she had more of a training than I did in, in a way in the arts. She has done quite sort of um, semi-abstracted figurative ceramic sculptures out of formed clay. Over the recent years, she's been writing. She's been writing the story of, of essentially the story of our trip sailing, written 30 years later, to show how that trip affected all four of us in our lives. Oh, I want to read that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Just having trouble finding a publisher, but she'll get there. And she keeps going back and reviewing it and making it better and better. And and but it's a fascinating story because you see a lot of a lot of travel books which are big fun and exciting, and you you go on a trip with whoever's writing it. But they're always written quite soon after, and and you don't know what happened afterwards and how that trip affected, especially a family, close knit family. So that's what she's been doing recently. And absolutely, that trip had such a formative experience on all of us. Um, that that it, it's a really important story to tell. I mean, like I told you about William, who's the freediver. I mean, all he knew was the sea. He, that's what he played in throughout his childhood, and so he dives back into it now. And and he, his sort of catchphrase is that the depths beckon me. And and he dives down. And you should watch the videos of him. They're all all on YouTube. And and you you just see him sinking into this sort of dark black depth of the ocean, and then swimming back up again. And, and what I love about what he's doing is, is that the kind of paradigm is the complete opposite to conventional sporting stories where you conquer, you win, you achieve by sort of big bursts of adrenaline. Diving, you only achieve if you completely give yourself up, if you completely yield and lose all your ego, all your sense of yourself and, and your presence, because any kind of intrusion into that moment of complete emptiness will reduce the amount of oxygen that you've got left in your brain. Any, any sort of emotional feelings or thoughts while you're, you're, you're thinking um, will reduce your performance. So he has to be completely empty to do that. And I love that paradigm. But for us today, is not conquering nature, but yielding and becoming a part of it, which is what he's doing. And, and, I, and I hope he's going to be telling that story more and more. The other brother, Sam, he's a performance artist. So that's sort of in the gap between traditional theatre and sculpture. So it's, it's kind of like, yeah, performance art. And sometimes he works in theatre, sometimes he works just out in, in the street or in, in the countryside. And the moment he's doing a PhD uh, on nomadism, and the paradigm of nomads kind of is, is an important one, again, for us today as well, that the sense of flowing across boundaries of, of having nothing. Nomads keep moving, they have no possessions, they, they're not hindered by possessions or land or anything like that. So they able to retain their cultures over generations because they're so fluid. And, and that's what he's doing his, his masters on, which is, again, obviously what we did as sailors on our boat. 
um, became nomads. And so again, there's that there's that story coming back in, in the present day. And the fact of doing that trip was the best thing we could have done as a family, was having that intense, close time together for those first 10 years of their childhood. When I didn't go off to work and I didn't travel and not be there for weeks on end, uh, we, were, we were all there together sharing that wonderful time of childhood, which you don't get back once they've grown up. It's gone. And, and so that was very precious. And because of that, we're still very close together now. It's a beautiful story. And now I want to quit my job and stay at home with my kid. So <laughs> <laughs> what's the next big adventure? What's coming up? Oh, gosh, I don't know. The beauty of it is the unknown of where, where it could go. I, I don't know. I, mean, I guess one thing I can say is that I'm having an awful lot of fun making boats right now. <laughs> oh, awesome. I've been making different sort of boats using the very thin plywood that we use and using the principle of these very thin structures which derive their strength from like an eggshell from the complete structure i've made a few little boats in the moment i'm making a, a, a stand-up paddleboard surfboard out of, out of plywood like this um, and, and i've actually designed a new form of windsurf rig because I, I love to windsurf and that's my way now of getting out on the ocean um, i don't need a boat i just have a, a board and i sail it out and um, the Polynesians have different sails which they traditionally derived, and it's been proven that some of those sails are actually the most efficient sails ever designed on all points of the wind. And so I've developed one of those into a windsurfing sail, which is a different way of sailing to, to the conventional windsurfing. And, and um, I've been going up, up to Maui a few times to sort of trial this and experiment with. And I've also designed and built a board to put it on because it needs a slightly different sort of board to the conventional one. So... Um, who knows where this will go? Um, I don't mind if it doesn't go anywhere. I'm having a lot of fun doing it, but that, that's what I'm doing now with, with my time. That sounds pretty great. I love the way you live life. I now am absolutely obsessed with the idea of finding a fantastic rock perch to sleep on and watch the sun go down and come back up. Yeah, you should do that. And and some people came out there the next day. They they came out to where I'd spent the night and they thought, oh, wow, look, it's amazing. They took some photographs and were gone. You just need to stop and not take photographs and be there and absorb it and you might not remember it quite so i did take photographs but it, you sort of don't need to it's more about the experience and being there and that's a whole different thing it'll affect you so much more and it's so important that we sort of stop rushing a bit and just sort of stop and sit and, and soak things in well, I have really enjoyed soaking in this conversation i feel like it was as glorious as a beautiful sunrise so thanks Oh, thank you. And, and I hope your listeners enjoy it as well. Could you give our listeners where they can find more David Trubridge? You have a blog on Medium. Is that where you do most of your writing? I do have a blog on Medium and it's linked from my website. So the, the website is just davidtrubridge.com and Trubridge is T-R-U Bridge. And we have the usual Facebook and Twitter and Instagram accounts as well. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been very inspiring and just an incredible time. So thank you. Thank you, Amy and Jamie. Thank you. He is salt of the earth. He, oh my God. he has achieved what I think he really wants to, which is he's become like part of the earth. In some sense, I feel like I can see his root structure, right? And I can see his stars and I feel like his chakras are like, I'm not going to be able to look at him without seeing his chakras now because there's something so transparent 
about him. There's no falseness, there's no pretense, and there's also no self-consciousness about what he really cares about. It's just absolute connection. Connection to the planet, connection to the object, connection to his relationships, connection to the sea, and in many ways, I think, connected to the unknown, which is a really beautiful thing. Like, people talk about going with the flow, but I get the sense from him that he is actually on the flow. <laughs> you know what I mean? As opposed to just espousing that idea. He's doing it. Yeah, he literally is the flow. I think it's so beautiful how much thought and meaning he puts into each of his objects. And at the same time, he's scaled that into a, a global business. But each one of those objects has still got the David Truebridge thoughtfulness that will then have a relationship with you when it's yours. What a powerful guy. And imagine what it would be like to spend five years of your youth at sea, Jamie. Can you, that's so different from anything I did growing up. I, I can't even verbalize how I would feel. I mean, it's just, it's such, it's such a foreign idea to me of that lifestyle in general. Like all of the things he was talking about, buying ruins up in the mountains and building his own furniture and like all of the things that he's done, it feels so different from what I've experienced in my life and what my world is that surrounds me right now. What was really interesting to me about him is that he is incredibly connected with natural resources, nature and the earth, right? So I am not, I live in a house that just feels completely not natural. It's clearly been like made, right? Everything around me has been molded out of plastic or metal or whatever. And I feel like everything that surrounds him is the direct opposite of that, right? It just feels created by earth and nature. He was able to paint a contrast between most of our like sort of urban dwellings and their mass producedness and what it's like when you actually cultivate a really of the earth kind of existence with only objects that have meaning to you and you can kind of understand their manufacture and they have purpose and you believe in them. And that's hard to do, especially if you haven't been attempting that for as many years as, as David has. But it's always something to strive for, I think. And I think even in your house in the suburbs, you still have a lot of objects that have a lot of meaning to you. I mean, you collect art, you make art, you have design objects that you're very fond of, that you know who made them. Those are meaningful connections. Even in your if your house is, you know, something that's part of an architectural plan that, you know, they made more than one of. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like I'm living in a manufactured world and I feel like David doesn't. Even when he's like on a plane or like somewhere where it just feels like a factory, that he still feels somewhat connected to the earth. And I feel like he surrounds himself more with things that resemble nature and haven't changed forms so dramatically that you don't know what it's made out of or where it came from. I felt like such an idiot asking him about life at sea, but I really want to know, like, I don't understand how one spends like three weeks at sea. Do you eat fish or do, or do you, you know, I wish we'd have to bring oranges with you so, so you don't get more. scurvy? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> do you have like 10 cans of rations? <laughs> like, how does this happen? <laughs> I know. I felt like that too. And I was like, I don't want to ask him these dumb questions that like some girl from the suburbs would ask somebody who lives their life at sea. But I was thinking about that. Like he's like docked in Tahiti 
and then just decided to work there. Like what? <laughs> like if I just like sailed my boat somewhere and just like docked it somewhere, I couldn't just like walk out and get a job. You know, it's it's such a unique situation that he was in. And I feel like I wanted to know so much more, but I did feel like I wanted to ask him just like the basic of basic questions. Like, where did you go to the bathroom? How much did you eat every day? (laughs) Did you fish for your food or did you bring food with you? Like, did you have seven days of clothes and where did you wash them? Like, just all of these. What do you do when you get in a fight with Linda? Do you have to go to opposite sides of the boat? Right, right. (laughs) Does one of you have to sit in the dinghy that you're pulling in the out of the back of the boat? But think about that. Those kids growing up, like the stars were their TV set. Think of how close-knit that family must be if you can't even get more than five feet away from each other for five years. That's incredible. It really is. And the fact that they don't hate each other is incredible, too, (laughs) at this point. I think it actually says a lot about how we could remove a lot of distractions from our life and be a lot closer with the people around us. I think that's true. And some of those distractions, they cause ego and they cause a lot of other negativities. And I agree. The other thing is that when he said he got swallowed by a whale, I totally believed him. Like, oh, my God, I totally I I was like ready for that story. And then I was ready for him to tell us that, like, he somehow, like, devised a contraption for the whale to, like, open its mouth so they could get out. I was just totally waiting for that story. And I was playing us, Jamie. I know. We both fell for it. But it was hilarious. I know. (laughs) I know. I thought I thought he was just this, like salty pirate who figured out totally. how to get out of a whale, save his right. family from a whale's mouth. <laughs> I was like, just, yeah, I want to know how you did that. And the other thing that really affected me too was the fact that he talked about people coming to a point saying, oh, that's pretty snapping a picture and walking away. And there is this sense in our world, especially with social media now that we feel like we have to constantly be checking things off our to-do list and, you know, documenting things for, for other people or whatever. But, you know, Spending time in that moment is really important. And that's something I've started to embrace um, as I'm getting older is putting my phone away and actually just experiencing it for what it is in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been doing that more and more because I don't need to tell people that I was there doing this thing. That's not important. What's important is, is my experience with this moment or whatever it is that I'm doing and and sharing that with the people who are around me at that time. I've been doing the same thing. I've been actively just trying to be more aware of what I'm experiencing and not living it through the lens of my smartphone. And I think when I do that, there's a value that you get from it that is hard to articulate. And when you post a picture on Instagram, there's a value you get from it that's very measurable, right? The number of likes or clicks or whatever you get. And so you kind of actively have to veer yourself away from that metric towards this unmeasurable, intrinsic value that you're not really sure how it's going to pay off, but it's going to pay off. You just know it is. And it's kind of like David was saying, like you have to be in that space and then you just have to wait for it. But that time spent in that space waiting for it is enormously peaceful. So peaceful. I think that's the value. I was thinking about what he also said about being in that moment and, you know, what he said about Bob Dylan waiting for it to come. And as somebody who makes art, I don't like to just sit around and wait for inspiration. However, I think that instead of going out into nature, you can also find that moment in doing what you're doing, right? It might be 
sanding wood or molding clay or painting, but it's more about giving in to the moment instead of trying to force things to come out. So you can be prolific, you know, and and be making things or doing things while you're hoping that you end up with something that works. Like, you know, 99% of what you do might be junk, right? But if you can get to that 1% in, in a way that's not forced, I think that the result is always really satisfying. You can't will it. Like he said, you can't will it to be. You just have to be there when it happens. David Truebridge, I feel like he is an endless resource of wisdom. And I would love, love, love to talk to him again. Can't wait for his book. Yeah, me too. Thanks, guys, for listening. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of David's work at cleverpodcast.com. And connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you guys. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of Your Studio with music by L1011. Hi, I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos from Passport. Each week, we travel to a new place to tell you enlightening, smart, and just plain incredible stories which have shaped our destination. We want you to experience the world with us. And so does this week's sponsor, Booking.com. And the best news is they're about to have the biggest sale of the year where you can save 30% or more. This is a limited offer, so make sure you book before the 1st of December 2020 to travel anytime before the end of 2021. Find amazing deals now at booking.com forward slash Black Friday to come and travel with us.